Hello and welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. Two segments today, both centering on cops. We'll hear from Paul Passavant on how U.S. police forces came to treat peaceful protesters so brutally. And then we'll hear from Marisol Cantu and Shiva Mishek on how Richmond, California managed to shift money away from the cops and towards more humane pursuits. The urban uprisings of the 1960s prompted then-President Lyndon Johnson to appoint a commission headed by the governor of Illinois, Otto Kerner, to investigate their causes. The Commission's explanations focused on poverty, police brutality, and racism. That marked the high point of official decency on these topics. Soon after its release, Richard Nixon became president and instituted a long period of reaction. Now, routine policing is an exercise in constant violence, and protest is repressed vigorously. How did this happen? With some answers, here's Paul Passavant, an associate professor of political science at Hobart and William Smith Colleges in Geneva, New York, and author of Policing Protests, the Post-Democratic State and the Figure of Black Insurrection, just out from Duke University Press. So to find the roots of current police and uh, punishment practices, you really do have to go back to the 60s, the urban rebellions at the time, uh, and also the rise in crime. And uh, certain people, like Richard Nixon, prominently among them, conflated crime and political protest the sense that the society as we knew it was uh, spinning out of control. So how can we trace what uh, we see on the streets today to that now 50 years ago uh, conjuncture? We have two sort of complicated things happening. Nixon was the voice of reaction when he was elected in 1968, a reaction against the protest movements of the of the 1960s. When you know he, in his speeches, he put himself out there as a representative of the non-demonstrators who were not responsible for the crime and violence of the era. And so he sort of conflated demonstrations and protests and with crime and, and violence. And he was also giving voice to a sense of that there was a crisis of democracy, to use the language of Harvard political scientist Samuel Huntington, that with all the movements of the 1960s, there was too much democracy. And Huntington singled out Black people and the participation of of Black people with the civil rights movement in particular as overloading the political system. And so he was giving voice to a sense of exhaustion, if not antipathy, towards democratic participation. And it's important to also realize that for conservatives uh, opposed to the civil rights movement, the nonviolent civil disobedience of the civil rights movement was basically criminal activity, violating the laws of racial segregation. This gave a broader sense of a a crime crisis and uh, broken windows policing winds up emerging as a kind of pushback against a vision of policing as law enforcement and targeting things like racialized poverty and the idea that police need to go beyond the law to reassert order. 
And a lot of times we talk about broken windows policing as zero tolerance order maintenance policing. And when your police force is trained to zero tolerance, then you've got a police department that is not trained towards the tolerance necessary to recognize demonstrations as examples of First Amendment activity. To have a police force that respects people's First Amendment rights is just antithetical to zero tolerance policing, Doug. It's easy to forget now, but there's that moment of the Kerner Commission, but there's a general consensus, at least in the more liberal side of society, that cops need to cool it. Uh, there need to be a tolerance of protest and not uh, not a sense of protesters as the enemy, but just people exercising democratic rights. So there was that moment of uh, <laughs> almost civilized social democracy uh, that uh, yeah. Nixon was a reaction against, right? Absolutely, Doug. I'm really glad that you brought that up. You have all this push uh, towards uh, a kind of social democratic horizon in the 1960s, And the Kerner Commission report of 50 years ago now was giving voice to that. And that report singled out uh, policing in the United States as incompatible with the kind of policing that is appropriate for democracy. But the Kerner Commission report also was cognizant of the gap between democratic promise, uh, the ideals of equality and democracy in the United States on the one hand, and the material reality of inequality and poverty and racial segregation on the other. And so the Kerner Commission was kind of an extension of this social democratic vision of the 1960s that said policing is in the United States is currently incompatible uh, with democracy and police are out of control. They're undisciplined. Many of them are overtly racist. They practice back alley justice and policing needs to become more like law enforcement. And that vision, plus some important Supreme Court decisions on the First Amendment that emerged out of the civil rights movement, helped pave the way for a more tolerant uh, form of policing protests. And that was called negotiated management. And so that got set in motion after the, the Kerner Commission reports Um, in the 1970s, and it carried through into the 80s and into the early 90s. And it was really uh, in the mid to late 90s when that gets stopped by another form of policing protest that I'm now calling the security model of protest policing. So what happened to to quash that old consensus and replace it with the the new brutal one? A few things uh, happened. Number one, I've already mentioned broken windows policing. And in the essay uh, by George Kelling and James Q. Wilson, that was the ideational template for Broken Windows Policing published in the 1980s, it is overtly a pushback against viewing police as law enforcement that the Kerner Commission had promoted. And that essay on Broken Windows Policing is saying that a police need to retrieve that order maintenance orientation and target signs of visible poverty. And so Bratton uh, becomes a broken windows, Bill Bratton uh, becomes a broken windows adherent, and he applies it in the uh, police force for the um, for the transit authority in New York City. And Giuliani becomes mayor of New York City and taps Bratton to be his police commissioner. 
And so broken windows policing becomes the form of policing for the NYPD. And from there, it travels all around the country, thanks to the promotional efforts of, of Bratton and Giuliani and, and people from the NYPD going off to lead other police departments like Philadelphia or Miami. But another thing happens, Doug, which is linked with uh, political economy that in the response to New York City's fiscal crisis in the mid-1970s and the way that the Ford administration and his Secretary of Treasury, Simon, sought to make an example of New York City for the rest of the United States and impose, you know, required that New York City impose austerity measures before the federal government would support New York City. And what winds up happening in terms of urban political economy is that they had lost a lot of manufacturing jobs, a lot of residents, and they begin to remake their infrastructure in a way that becomes, on the one hand, oriented more oriented towards visitors rather than the city's residents, tourists or conventions on the one hand, and to try to create a, an environment that's more hospitable uh, for the fire industries of finance, insurance, and real estate. And so part of this urban political economy is about branding the city and trying to market it to potential visitors. And one way of doing that is by hosting mega events. And the most significant mega events are national special security events, which is the highest security classification in U.S. law. And examples of NSSEs are things like a, a party co- national party convention like the DNC or the RNC uh, or the Super Bowl or a presidential inauguration or funeral. And when an event is designated as an NSSE, uh, then uh, the um, Secret Service becomes the lead agency on security And um, there's all kinds of national materials made available for police departments in terms of securing the event. And if you're hosting the DNC or the RNC, then you also get uh, significant um, appropriations of money to purchase weaponry and security materiel. And that stuff stays long after the event has left the city. And so this uh, hosting of NSSEs, hosting mega events, designated NSSEs, begins to embed security into the fabric of the, of the city. And when you are hosting a mega event, a demonstration or a protest is viewed as a risky threat much like crime or terrorism or a natural disaster might be. In other words, it is not perceived as the exercise of freedom of speech or a democratic practice, and police will respond to those demonstrations as that kind of a a threat rather than the exercise of freedom of speech or, or democracy. And so what we wind up having here, emerging out of the 70s, is we have a kind of vertical pressure to securitize urban environments by hosting mega events to try to appeal to tourists and conventions and brand the city on the one hand. And on the other hand, we have this kind of horizontal dissemination of broken windows policing through police departments across the country. And we have a kind of sense in our political culture of exhaustion, if not antipathy, towards democracy, also as a reaction against the movements of the 1960s. And so these three things sort of intersect to produce 
the kind of protest policing that we see today, one that is quite hostile to demonstrators and protests. Now, you describe uh, this new order as being post-legitimation, post-democratic. So let's talk about those things. Post-legitimation. Now, I was struck recently when, you know, Jeff Bezos launched himself into space. And there was this meme circulating. <laughs> we, all, we all cite our memes these days. But there was a meme circulating that, you know, back in the, uh, the robber baron days, you had Carnegie building libraries and Rockefeller founding universities, whereas Bezos is launching himself into space. <laughs> and it struck me that this is a bourgeoisie that doesn't really feel like it has to legitimate itself to the broad population. Yeah. You have a different approach to it, but it's a similar phenomenon that this is a ruling class that thinks it's secure and it just doesn't have to give a damn what the public thinks. How does this post-legitimation attitude fit into uh, this model of policing? Yeah, I'm glad that you pointed that out. I think that there is a kind of complementarity, for example, between you know your recent writing on the billionaire class in the United States and what I was talking about in terms of policing. The Kerner Commission is definitely oriented towards the threat of a legitimation crisis and the sense that government needs to be legitimate. It needs to narrow the gap between democratic promise and the ideals of equality on the one hand and material inequalities that exist in reality on the other for government to be perceived as democratically legitimate. And that sensibility gets lost with the sense that there's a crisis of democracy. And they just turn their backs on the whole concern with legitimation. Neoliberalism is is one factor here. Governments cease to govern in a manner that would be rooted in the, with the consent of the people or orienting programs towards the good of the people. Instead, government gets oriented towards markets or embedding market logics within the state itself. And so it's not governing for the people, it's governing for markets. And if the people benefit at all, then that's simply incidental. You know, as a first cut, there's that. Secondly, broken windows policing is sort of self-consciously not law enforcement, right? It's, it's oriented towards maintaining order and zero tolerance. And, and preemptive very often, right? Yeah, that's right. Before there's even a legal violation. And so in the most rudimentary sense of legitimation, that government needs to act in a manner that is framed by law, that's not there, right? You act, like you said, in a preemptive way, more preventative way before there was any le- there's any legal violation. And so in the most rudimentary sense of legitimation, that government needs to act in a legal way, broken windows policing tosses that aside as well. And that gets embedded within our policing and the policing of protests and demonstrations. I'm speaking with Paul Passavant, author of Policing Protest, just out from Duke University Press. And the police pursue these tasks with what seems like pleasure, with a surplus of violence, and they take obvious pleasure in it. Uh, and there's a certain part of the public that takes um, pleasure in watching them do this. And I was reminded of this passage in uh, Philip Murawski's uh, book about neoliberalism, that never let a serious crisis go to waste. Uh, he says, cultural outlets square the circle by staging little neoliberal allegories in the public sphere, directing anger away from intractable predicaments in the political sphere towards the victims. Every system of cruelty requires its own theater. In the neoliberal theater of cruelty, one torments the poor indigent precisely because they are prostrate. He says that cruelty is a very important part of the whole armamentarium of neoliberalism. Yeah. Your work is is also confirming that, that that, that there's some aspect 
I don't know, libidinal or whatever you want to call it, of profound pleasure that cops and their supporters take in this kind of violence towards protesters. Yeah. So text messages from police have been discovered, you know, where it's clear that they enjoy beating demonstrators or, or protesters. But even more disturbing is, for example, I look at some of the comment threads on videos of cops, say, pepper spraying Occupy Wall Street activists. And you can see that there are folks who just simply enjoy um, watching videos of people getting pepper sprayed or beaten by police when they are demonstrating and exercising their First Amendment rights, that people get off on that. We have to start to recognize that neoliberalism exists not um, merely uh, you know, or despite the inequalities that it produces. But actually, we need to, I think, come to grips with the political attachments, um, the subjective attachments to neoliberalism, that people may, in fact, enjoy the inequalities that neoliberalism produces, that people might enjoy the kind of cruelties of neoliberal government. And we can certainly see this kind of, again, a kind of post-democratic, post-legitimation political subjectivity where people enjoy seeing protesters get beaten by cops rather than recognizing that as a legitimation crisis of the state. So let's talk about a couple of these um, protests. You write something about Seattle 1999, which is something that interests me because I was there for that week. And what I remember, of course, was the exuberance. And there was some police violence, but by the standards since Seattle, it was not very, um, not anywhere near as brutal as it could have been. But at the end of the week, I walked up to uh, several cops who were standing around. And I said, you know, I'm from New York. I, I don't really understand what happened here. In New York, the NYPD would have surrounded the convention center with five rows deep of cops, and none of this would have happened. They would have just beat everyone to, senseless otherwise. I said, what happened with you guys? And he said, we just didn't understand crowd control. The NYPD understands crowd control, but we didn't. But I gather they learned their lesson after 99. Yeah. 1999 is a period, I think, of transition. And so I think the kind of mixed response of the Seattle police is, you know, an example of this transition. Before the World Trade Organization, my understanding of the Seattle police is that they worked more in the mode of negotiated management yeah, they were trying to be good liberals up to a point. Yeah, that's right. They they didn't want to violate people's civil liberties in terms of expanding forms of surveillance, for example. And they uh, worked with people who were engaged in nonviolent civil disobedience and would like help them get arrested once the cameras were rolling. But then there's a sense from some activists in 1999 that like, huh, something changed. And uh, yeah, that this was different than what we've been accustomed to from the Seattle Police Department. And the after action reports, you've got a spectrum of responses. And so on the one hand, you had the uh, ACLU of Washington, the state of Washington, calling out the Seattle Police Department saying, look, just because you know people are engaged in nonviolent civil disobedience, this is not an occasion for summary punishment using chemical irritants or what have you. And then you have other consultants who are producing reports saying, look, the Seattle Police Department needs to get tougher in terms of their reaction to protesters and treat protesters more like the enemy. That's a transitional point. And now whenever any other city hosts a mega event, Seattle's always the warning example. We don't want this to become another Seattle. And so they bulk up on security measures to prevent that from happening. 
A few years later, the other side of the country, uh, we had the uh, 2002 World Economic Forum meeting in New York. And I remember you know, the demonstrators at that point did want to create another Seattle. They're, we were hoping that uh, the spirit of Seattle had not been killed by 9-11. But uh, the NYBD uh, was perfecting its, uh, its new style of policing uh, protest. And then 2004, the Republican National Convention, they were really uh, riding roughshod over um, civil liberties. So um, how did the NYPD develop these new tactics? And where, where did it come from? On the one hand, they expanded their intelligence division and engaged in in more surveillance. On the other hand, we can see like in some heavily redacted after action reports, uh, we can see that the NYPD is responding in a manner to preempt um, any kind of disorder. So as you were saying before, to um, act before there's been legal violations and also to intimidate demonstrators. And in fact, in these after action reports, you can see that the NYPD enjoys intimidating demonstrators rather than interacting with fellow citizens uh, the way that you would with co-equal members of the polity in a democracy. You know, I once was in a deli waiting for a sandwich and there's a cop online with me and he's wearing that very dark blue, almost black shirt that the NYPD was had moved to from the old light blue shirts. And I, I asked him, what happened? Why did you change the colors? And he said it was Bratton. Bratton liked the idea of the black because he thought it was more intimidating. That was the attitude he wanted to present to the public. It's not you know, like friendly officer Joe Bolton on the beat anymore. It's somebody who wants you to give him a good reason not to beat you. Right. Yeah, this is part of broken, win- broken windows policing is sort of an interesting uh, practice of aesthetics and perception. And so, yeah, Bratton was involved as police commissioner in choosing outfits for the NYPD so that they could look more intimidating and more militaristic. And as we know from Christian Parenti's work, for example, he armed the Transit Authority police uh, with Glock 9s, again, to send a message of intimidation vis-a-vis the rest of the public in New York City. But to loop back to the RNC, one other thing that the NYPD did to prepare for policing the Republican National Convention in 2004 was to establish a policy where they would not issue summonses and they would require full arrests with fingerprints on the one hand. And on the other hand, they would create a post-arrest staging site at Pier 57, a grimy, horrible bus depot with razor wire and chain link fence where there wasn't fingerprinting technology. And so this is where all the arrestees during the RNC were brought. And so this was foreseeably going to extend the period of time when RNC protesters who were arrested by the NYPD, it would foreseeably extend the period of time that they were in custody and keep them off the streets during the RNC. And arrestees were kept in custody for 24, 36, in some instances, over 50 hours in violation of New York state law. And if you're talking about 50 some odd hours, you're also talking about violations of federal law as well. And so this is a way to kind of act extra legally, again, post-legitimation, post-democratic, to keep people off the streets to host this mega event. And uh, in disgusting facilities, right? In disgusting facilities. In a way, it was a kind of extrajudicial punishment for having exercised your rights during the RNC. Take it up to the more recent... uh... Take it up to the present, really. Uh, the Black Lives Matter protesters of the last uh, several years. Watching this in New York, the police seem, seem to take 
extra special pleasure in beating people more than ever. And I'm guessing this is because the protests themselves were specifically directed at the police. It was not just some broad complaint, but it was really, we don't like the way you guys do your jobs. A lot of us really don't like you at all and would like to cut your funding or abolish you completely. Um, Is that what was um, behind um, this um, exuberant use of violence? The stunning thing about the police response to the racial justice protests during the summer of 2020 is that they had to know that they were being watched and video recorded because of what had happened to George Floyd. And they nevertheless acted in lawless, brutal ways. And that lets us see the kind of impunity that the NYPD has been accustomed to enjoying. Again, it almost seems like an enjoyment of that kind of impunity and freedom to beat demonstrators and protesters. And that lets us see that the policing in New York City, but also around the country, has gotten out of control. And it is not the kind of policing, you know, just to reiterate things that were said in the late 1960s. uh, Again, it's the kind of policing that's not compatible with a democratic society, which is why I call it, we're seeing a a kind of post-democratic state emerging. Nevertheless, you know, the New York attorney general did file an action against the NYPD saying that it is a custom and practice um, of the NYPD to behave lawlessly, seeking to get a consent decree. And we'll see what happens with that. And finally, um, this style of policing is really tied to the broader transformation of the social order over the last four or five decades, far more hierarchicalized with weaker welfare state protections, uh, weaker job protections, uh, increasing precarity, and this idea of of city as spectacle, and we can't do anything to interfere with the spectacle. This really is just not some kind of development in its own. It really uh, fits in with a very large transformation of the political economy as well, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. So if we go back, you know, the last few decades, We've seen a rollback of policing of the suites of Wall Street and finance, and we've seen an intensification of policing in the streets. And we need to understand policing as part of the state and, as you say, as part of the broader social formation and you know, an adjunct of the um, state's political economy. And so insofar as we have state policies that produce grave, significant forms of inequality, that are not consistent with democratic consent, then the only way to maintain order is with this kind of aggressive policing. And broken windows policing, the way that that targets forms of visible racialized poverty is a form of policing that is consistent with a society that permits significant forms of inequality to exist And it is a form of policing that is compatible with a city that's trying to maintain its its branded image and market itself to visitors and conventions and and tourists and and that kind of thing to try to manage the perception of these visitors when they come to the city so that they have a good time and they, they have an aesthetically pleasing experience. But it's a form of policing that targets the residents for brutality insofar as it is remaking the city as a playground for for visitors. And so we do need to understand policing as part of a broader state structure. And right now, the policing that we see is the kind of policing that's compatible with a society, you know, and a state that is post-democratic. And we see that in ordinary routine policing on the streets of New York City with stop and frisk, 
on the one hand, and on the other hand, we see it with respect to demonstrations and protests where they are not tolerated and they're not recognized as the exercise of democratic rights, but instead they are something to be attacked, contained, controlled. That was Paul Passavant, an associate professor of political science at Hobart and William Smith Colleges in Geneva, New York, and author of Policing Protests, the Post-Democratic State and the Figure of Black Insurrection, just out from Duke University Press. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. But I couldn't offer her anything new It's a pity what money can do She met with a stranger More wealthy than I What I had promised her He said he'd buy that was some of It's a Pity What Money Can Do, a 1954 song by Marty Robbins. And now more on cops, this time tips on how to rein them in. Mike Parker and Shiva Mishek have an article on the Jacobin Magazine website on how organizers in Richmond, California, have succeeded in prying some money from the cops and redirecting it towards social services. How did they do it? Here to explain are Shiva Mishek, an organizer with the Richmond Progressive Alliance, and Marisol Cantu, an organizer with Reimagining Richmond. Richmond is a highly diverse industrial city of just over 100,000 in the East Bay region of Northern California. It's dominated economically, politically, and ecologically by a Chevron refinery. Here are Marisol Cantu and Shiva Mishek. What exactly is Chevron afraid of? It's not like you're going to expropriate their property and turn it over to the workers. I mean, why are they so deeply involved in local politics? There is such a stronghold that people don't necessarily in the community don't fully understand the stronghold that Chevron has. For a long, long time, we have been under their thumb and they have polluted not just our water and our soil and our air, but our local governance. The community is in the understanding now that Chevron is a key player as a polluter. And I don't think it understands the intricacies of how Chevron functions and the amount of money that it plagues our local politics with. And that's the work that Reimagine Richmond is really looking to inform our community members about. And we are under attack constantly. And it's the, the money, if you really want to follow the money, it's coming from Chevron and it's coming from the police union. And our attacks are, are being um, from, from the mayor, from Mayor Bud and and from councilmen and their personal attacks, their procedural attacks, and they're stopping the actual work of how we reimagine and how our community reimagines a different type of Richmond without corporation like Chevron in it. Marisol is being a little bit modest here in that she is helping Um, She is starting to sort of forge the path along with a lot of other community groups for our, the city's complete transition away from Chevron as an entity in the city. We're hoping to completely transition away from their presence. Um, So that's going to be an ongoing fight in Richmond. 
Um, but I mean, in terms of what they're scared of, it is also just, you know, the most basic things that any corporation cannot stand in a community, which is to pay a basic fair share of taxes. The smallest, you know, the smallest amount that we ask for is fought tooth and nail. Um, you know, there are oil spills and ominous, huge plumes of smoke going over the city all the time. And um, they just do not want to pay for any of the damage they do. You know, it's a common common sort of story. Okay, now let's turn to the police story. Uh, Richmond has had a reputation as being a pretty high crime place with a problems with gun violence. Uh, and I believe, as you described it in the article, the police were somewhat popular. What about the politics of the cops going into uh, your campaign? So we were outspent. We were outnumbered. And I want to take us back one step because Reimagine Richmond came off the heels of progressive city council leaders that were community organizers in this work. And from that, there was a huge last year, this racial justice summer around Black Lives Matter and centering policing right now. And in that, our public safety model right now equates safety to the police. And I think progressives understand that it's more than that. It's a basic needs being met. It's being able to move from just surviving to then being able to thrive. And especially in our community, we have, especially Black and Brown people, especially Black people have been just historically harmed by the police department. And so going into this movement, and it is a larger movement to reimagine Richmond, we were looking at policing uh, and the police union to fight us. We didn't understand the power of a police union and that is, and the money behind the police union. But we did understand community power. And we did understand that we needed to do mass mobilization and we need to control the narrative. And part of that narrative was to not use the word defund. Why did you center on not using that that word defund? Because it, you know it's the slogan defund the police is quite popular on the left. Um, it doesn't necessarily um, sell to a broader audience. So talk about the politics of that slogan. Yeah, we recognized when we started using defund, not all of our city is made up of progressives and leftists. We we do have a lot of homeowners and business owners that really support Mayor Bud and his initiatives and like Chevron being here, centrist Democrats. And so we felt that with the defund, one, it took too long to explain. We had to de-jargonize our language because it was already being at a national level being attacked as a terrorist group, which the Black Panthers also were and many other groups prior. And so we knew that we needed to not just buy the minds of people, but the hearts of people. And so when we started reshifting to public safety, we were able to ask more questions around what is a true public safety system? Who is it serving? What does it entail? What are the priorities? And that's where we able to really um, get into the hearts of our fellow community members that weren't really with this defund language because simply they didn't understand it. Yeah, I interviewed someone a few months ago, uh, Jason Perez, who's been doing this work in Chicago, who says that when you first start mentioning the idea of defunding or really significantly taking on the cops to people, they have 
uh, very often an instinctively negative reaction, but as you talk to them, you can bring them around. Is that your experience in doing this work? It's difficult. I think that it's been important for us to recognize that the American mind is incredibly wedded to police as the foundation of safety, right? It's something that proliferates the media. Yeah, that thin blue line rhetoric really has an influence, right? Absolutely. And of course, we see with that the, you know, the few bad apples thing, not finishing the sentence of spoils the bunch, right? This was an important lesson for, I think, um, particularly not just progressives and everyone in the RP and reimagined Richmond, but particularly stronger, um, more radical leftists in this work is that, you know, we, those of us who are more radical leftists tend to talk amongst ourselves, right? And so even it became important to recognize that the way language and rhetoric around this strikes fear in people and it hasn't been productive to just want people to be in the same place, right? To want to want to hope that people just understand why we want to quote unquote take money from the police. And I think also this, this is important to be seen in the wider context of um, American neoliberalism, right? There's been a constant defunding of social services for the American public for decades. And so, you know, we are in a situation where working class people, middle class people are paying relative, relatively up the nose in taxes in comparison to corporations and rich people and getting very little for it, right? So to threaten yet another quote unquote social service to be defunded, it's not really as if in American society, we see money being shifted around from one thing to another, right? When things are defunded as a social service, it sort of disappears. And so it's been important for us to emphasize that we're not just taking money away from police and then it's gonna disappear, but that we are actually shifting that money to another new, and not even that new, the, our, the programs that have been come up with are proven programs, but different ways and more effective ways of providing public safety. That money is not going to disappear. It is being reinvested into the community. Did you have anything to add to that, Marital? Thank you. So I, I 100% agree. The messaging was key and is going to continue to be key as we continue our work here in the city. I also really think that we really had to reach to where our community was. And Shiva, sometimes anybody who is so staunch in their political values tend to leave out other people in this conversation. And this is where we really needed to come to our community and meet them where they were at. There were people that really didn't understand the language and it did become really this kind of accessibility of the language. But then it also is about framing Richmond within the national context of this movement of Black Lives Matter, of how do we reallocate services from a police? And just to point on what Chiva said, nobody could talk against the recommendations. They didn't like the funding source. But when we were able to reframe the, the conversation around public safety and meeting basic needs and helping our community members thrive, Nobody had a problem with any of the proposals. It was simply that they didn't want this particular, what they felt was a social service in their mind, to be defunded. 
And that's what we're going to continue to fight here in Richmond. So what kind of alternatives are you proposing? So just this year, we are looking to, we look to address the root causes of, of crime and poverty and violence in our city. And so at the core, they addressed um, our homelessness crisis that right now over 50% um, are Black in our community of our unhoused uh, folks. We also are addressing youth unemployment and some racial inequities in, in policing and looking at a program called um, the Office of Neighborhood Safety that prevents crime and doesn't react. And that was a big shift in the narration. We really asked people, what did the police and what do they prevent? And most of the time, they couldn't get an answer. Not only do they simply react to crime, but in our city, they don't even solve a lot of our crimes. And so we really wanted to focus on, if we want to shift this narrative, we need to focus on the highest priorities of calls and stop criminalizing our unhoused population, our youth, our black and brown folks, simply for driving, biking, et cetera. What could we do to prevent this? And of course, the non-police mental health crisis line, um, which we're calling the community crisis response line, taken after cahoots in Oregon, a little bit of macro and mental health first out in Sacramento. There are alternative ways, and that's what people wanted. They called in, and we had mass public support for these types of alternatives. And those programs are thriving, all of them right now. Some are city, and some are new nonprofits that are working for our city. And it will continue to build as we continue to look at the data and shift the narrative of what truly needs to have one officer that's getting paid $300,000. Yeah, I was stunned by that. $300,000 per cop um, is, you know, it's not just what they're paid, but I guess the cost of uh, additional cost per cop. But that's a, f- that's a fortune. I mean, it's just a stunning amount of money for a cop. It is. And just this last year, by June, we had six cops that made $100,000 simply in overtime. And that's because we have this minimum staffing level that says that we need to be policed at a certain level due to our crime, even though our crime has been decreasing over the last couple of years. And so once people saw the numbers of the budget of $67 million going to the RPD. Or, and then they also saw what they were responding to, suspicious person, suspicious vehicles. Suspicious to who exactly? People really started saying, wait a minute here. They actually stop people and wait a minute, they're getting paid almost $300,000 to get paid to, to harm, especially black and brown community members. That's where we really saw a change in the narrative. And that's where we clung to the national movement of showing that this is a fight for black and brown lives. It is not a a money fight. It's not a political. Our bodies themselves are political. And we have seen the effects of horrible policing on our community. And that's where people really started to to shift. And those numbers were astonishing to, to everybody. 
That's the voice of Marisol Cantu, an organizer with Reimagining Richmond. I'm speaking with her and Shiva Mishek, an organizer with the Richmond Progressive Alliance. Uh, and so what have you accomplished so far? What budgetary changes have happened? I also just, uh, and this will segue into what you're saying, I also want to kind of anticipate a common oppositional talking point we get, which is, you know, Marisol just noted how the police actually don't get around to solving a lot of the crimes in Richmond. And so the common police union response is, well, we don't have enough money. You keep taking money away from us, so on and so forth. And that's why we aren't able to provide these services, right? I want to reiterate that 40% of our general fund goes to police and fire, right? So if 40% of the budget going to the police is not helping them solve crime, then what's going to be the right amount? Is it going to be 50% of our general fund, 60% of our general fund? It's just an unsustainable approach to public safety. If they are already getting $67 million of our general fund, whereas all of our other social services are only getting 7% of the general fund, this immediately emphasizes that we have to approach this differently. And so that's been the primary emphasis in looking at the budget is that these are unsustainable levels. You know, our city workers haven't gotten raises in over five years. It's minimal staffing levels. There is a narrative that Richmond is broke. You know, we are by different um, bonds, ratings, agencies, we're given like Fs and rated as fiscally irresponsible, so on and so forth. But if you look at, I mean, again, we do house Chevron, right? We do house industry. We're a port city. And so it is not so much that we don't have the money. We have some pretty progressive taxation in the city. And yet we are a city that provides services as if we are a completely broke city. And it is because of the way we fund police. Marisol can talk about the budgeting even more because she's really, really dug into that. Okay, please do. The budget is almost 40% going to RPD um, and not fire. And so what we were able to reallocate is um, first we asked, and I think if people um, are listening nationally, that this is a model that I think people really need to understand. We went bold because we knew and we demanded a lot more than we actually knew we were going to probably get. And so we went bold. We originally asked for $10.3 million and we came back with one of the biggest fights that we had ever seen with the police union equating that number to 32 officers being laid off. And that fueled the opposition for months. Mailers went out, commercials. You are not going to be safe. You will be dangerous. At one point, the mayor even equated a, a shooting and almost blamed the RPA on that shooting because people were emboldened by this idea, just the idea that there would be 32 less officers. Now, there was not one single layoff. The progressive majority made sure and made a motion saying that there wouldn't be no layoffs. And so what we ended up taking, and this is what the police union didn't want to talk about, was that the police union, the police budget itself had a surplus of $10 million from vacancies, from unused contracts. Uh, So their original budget was $77 million for last year. They only actually used $67 million. And we took 3 million, the community, I'm talking we in the community, took our money back. This is our money. 
This does not belong to anybody else. It is our residents, our community's members' money. And we took that back. And that was that three million was in 12 vacant officers, long standing vacant officer positions. And we could look at the national trend of why people aren't going into to policing anymore, why they're they're leaving. The police union will always say it's because of the progressive council. It's because of the defunders and abolitionists. It is not. It has been happening. It is no longer a prestigious job that most people want to be involved in because they understand the system itself and they're one person within that system. We also were able to use surplus money this last year um, from the general fund. And then the last we used was a, a housing fee. And in total, we were able to re allocate $6.3 million into community services. And we are not stopping. We are looking long-term because we would really like to see a budget. If it does reflect our moral values right now, it is simply reflecting policing. It is not reflecting our libraries, our parks and recs, our, our youth, our LGBTQ, our indigenous community, it is not reflecting the needs that we have right now. I mentioned Jason Perez earlier, who's doing this work in Chicago. And one of the things he said was that uh, to do this work right requires getting into a lot of really mundane budget detail. And uh, you say this in your article as well, you really have to get immersed in uh, the realities of fiscal politics and how the bureaucracy works. Uh, It's not very glamorous, but it's hard work. But to do it right, you really need to roll your sleeves up and get into that stuff, right? Yeah. And it's, it's also, you know, and I think this is, this has been certainly a really useful political education for, I think, even the most seasoned organizers in the community. It's really been important to see this as needing a multi-prong approach, right? There's been electoral work, long-term electoral work that's been necessary um, to get the right the right progressives in power, right, which is arduous work in and of itself. And then comes the nitty gritties of, as Marisol has been valiantly doing, um, learning about line items, budgets, all the strange ways that the police hide money, the way city budgets work, encumbrances. Um, And then also in California, you know, there are a lot of laws around making it difficult for people to organize and reach out to city council members. You know, it's not an easy, it's not an easy process. It's been important to inform ourselves on how we can do this in a way that is thorough and anticipating attacks and finding money. Right. And I think that um, it's, it's, it's not glamorous work at all. It's not glamorous work at all, but I think that um, the more people um, organizers can draw into the work, um, because it is unpaid work and it's work that, you know, we need to be on, available and on an almost daily basis to respond to new obstacles that come up all the time. The more people we can draw in to help us with this work, the better it goes. And so I think that it has also been a real exercise in coalition building because we bring in people with, you know, diverse skill sets who can help us wade through this stuff. All right, to conclude, uh, what sort of uh, advice would you give uh, to people around the country who might want to replicate the kind of work you're doing? Yeah, I'll begin. Um, I would definitely say that ground yourself, root yourself in the community, ground yourself in a long-term fight. It is a system that we are fighting. We are not fighting each other. 
we are fighting for the right to live, especially our, our Black comrades. Really see who your target audience is, understand the demographics of your city and the political landscape, build coalitions. Reimagine Richmond built a coalition with the RPA and that work continues. I see it just as Shiva said, multi-prong, really looking at city governance and to really lead a campaign that is community-led and city-invested needs to root the most vulnerable in the city, the most marginalized, the most historically harmed. And they need to be leading this fight and other folks need to be following. That was Marisol Cantu, an organizer with Reimagining Richmond. She was also joined by Shiva Mishek, an organizer with the Richmond Progressive Alliance and co-author of an article on this topic on the Jacobin Magazine website. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this, some of the brains. An Atlanta-based band from the early 1980s doing Money Changes Everything, a song later made famous by Cyndi Lauper. Till next week, bye. <laughs>